0: Good morning! Welcome, Theo 102. 102.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome <laughs> to the first class in the era of the virus.
0: The digital corona class. The digital yeah. corona class. Students, We're super happy you're here.
1: We, if you could see the auditorium right now, it is totally empty. <laughs> Um, if you're watching on video, the camera's probably tight in on us, and you can't see. Mm-hmm. We do have our TA crew. Hello, TAs. The TA
0: crew. Woo! Yeah. Hopefully, you can TA hear them. TA crew is
1: down there. They uh, are your
0: stand-ins, your proxies.
1: They are the audience for today. Yes. Um, we want to. We want to. Um, we want to clarify a couple of things about just like the email that we sent out and what we're doing in this class and how we're doing it.
0: Yes. So we want to bring your attention back to that email and to the little video that we made uh, for you all explaining everything. Basically, we are continuing the class. We do not have Wednesday sections for the remainder of the class, but all of the Monday and Friday lectures and debates and panels will be done and you will receive that content in the comfort of your own um, socially distanced space.
1: Monday, Friday. So Monday, Friday, we're continuing on the Monday, Friday schedule. So okay. just every week, you just think, okay.
0: Today's I, Theo. I,
1: how has this changed? We're still doing Monday, Friday, and we're not doing sections. So that's a change, the no sections. Mm-hmm. Although we had four weeks in a row where we didn't have sections.
0: Yes. We're also still doing the readings.
1: We're still doing the readings that are up there on the course schedule, under yes. spring schedule on georgefox.edu believe.
0: We are still memorizing the creed.
1: We're still memorizing the creed and we're still going to be adding phrases and so on during the Monday sections, just like we usually do. Monday sessions, I should say.
0: Yes, and we are also still doing reaction papers. That's really important.
1: Oh, and the reaction papers. We're keeping the we're keeping the the, the wording of reaction paper just because we know that that's familiar. But actually, these are not going to be open-ended things where you write in response to a question. Rather, they're going to be quizzes. So we're calling them confusingly reaction paper quizzes.
0: That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's a that's a hard turn. That's a hard phrase. You'll
0: see them on Foxtail. They should be very simple and easy for you to fill out, but we want to give you a way to get credit for your participation, Mm -hmm. even though we are not going to be face-to-face with one another.
1: Still going to be worth five points. They'll be administered on Foxtail. There are instructions that are really clear on Foxtail. There are going to be links everywhere on the course webpage in the right spots. You won't be able to miss it. You can't miss it. Famous last words.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um. (laughs) And of course, email us if you have any questions about any of that as you go along, but we are confident that we're going to get through this together.
1: One point of confusion that we need to clear up. So even though students are being released today, today is March 13th, Friday the That's 13th. Right. Lucky. In a sense, being released next week for, quote, spring break early. Next week is not spring break on campus, actually. No. So we're still having, you, you are still responsible to have, to do, to, to do the, do the reaction paper quiz after the Monday lecture, and then we're still going to do our thing next Friday. The week of like March 20th, 23rd, 24th, 25th, that week, that's the official University Spring Break. We don't have any activities during that week, but next week we do.
0: That's right, so we want to make sure that you know that you will be doing a reaction paper on Monday and Friday of next week, wherever you are, if you're on campus or somewhere else.
1: You can always email us if you have questions, if you have comments. We're here, and um, the TA team is here. Yes. They're just looking at us. Get yeah. off your phone, Richard.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Richard gets a 0 Richard for just got today. A zero. We just saw that happen. That's right. That's right. All right. <laughs> this
1: week, what are we talking about now? What are, what oh are we doing man. this debate
0: about? Okay, so we're in the middle of our church history sprint. Um, we have been talking about uh, the history of the church Using two lines in the creed, um, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Yes. Last week or earlier this week, we started communion of saints and we are going to be continuing in that theme with a debate and discussion about the Reformation.
1: Specifically addressing the question, should the Protestant Reformation have occurred?
0: Ooh, I'm very excited about that because we have two really excellent scholars representing two distinct positions today
1: oh so excited should we introduce them
0: yes you go oh okay oh i thought (laughs) first Uh, dr javier garcia um you all know and love him in addition to being a lover of puns and good humor and dancing, as you remember. He is also an expert on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the most important Protestant theologians of the 20th century. So he will be here representing uh, the Protestant position.
1: Let's hear it for Dr. Garcia. Yay,
0: Dr. Garcia.
1: And in this corner, we have Dr. Ross McCullough. Dr. McCullough is Catholic. And Dr. McCullough, (laughs) (laughs) he's a Catholic Catholic scholar. He's a scholar of medieval Catholic thinkers like Thomas Aquinas, particularly Thomas Aquinas' views on the problem of suffering and evil. His PhD is from Yale. Maybe you've heard of it. Heard of it. Dr. McCullough is one of the professors in our honors program. We're so delighted to have him here um, to share with us.
0: That's right. So... Without further ado, I will be the debate moderator. Did we
1: clap for Dr. McCullough?
0: Oh, Dr. McCullough! McCullough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, doctor. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So now, without further ado, I will be the debate moderator. You all remember the format, but just to remind you, we will hear seven minutes, um, seven minute introductions from each of our scholars today. And then we will give them five minutes to discuss back and forth with one another about the finer points of disagreement or agreement that they have with one another. And then we are going to open it up to questions from the TAs. They are going to be your proxy question askers. We know they're going to do great work. So are you ready to
1: rumble? TAs, are you ready to rumble? Yeah
0: great job all right um let's see i believe is dr garcia our first one today i believe i am dr garcia you have seven minutes i will give you a one minute warning
2: all right starting now
0: starting now
2: i believe that the protestant reformation should definitely have occurred and that it has brought a lot of good into this world um, but before I get started in my argument, I'd like to say that I appreciate uh, Dr. McCullough very much, and all Roman Catholics. I actually grew up Roman Catholic, and so I have a deep appreciation for the tradition. Uh, and I also just, yeah, I just wanted to w- start with that. But having said that, distinctions between Protestants and Catholics are still important, and it's important to understand what those distinctions are. So. The first uh, distinction that I'd like to talk about uh, is a bigger, bigger question uh, about authority. But what I want to talk about is sola scriptura, which uh, Dr. Zorzi brought up in the Monday lecture. Protestants are generally agreed that scripture is the highest authority for Christians uh, and a sufficient authority uh, in that way. And so 2 um, Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 say says, uh, or they say, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, uh, Protestants, part of the the Protestant Reformation was to say, actually, uh, the Roman Catholic Church does not have exclusive authority on reading Scripture. And actually, Scripture interprets itself and is very, um, is actually accessible to all people in in basics when it comes to salvation to faith to how to live the christian life and i think that uh, uh, those verses from second timothy are very helpful in seeing the divine inspiration of scripture but also its usefulness for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness uh obviously that does not say that is the only uh, authority uh, and that the church is very important uh, for this task But Protestants are very confident that Christians can uh, interpret Scripture for themselves and that Scripture, by understanding the text and how they interpret one another, uh, we can be confident in how we approach Scripture. So with this uh, difference in authority, that Scripture is the highest authority, um, Protestants reject the authority of the Pope. And also certain interpretations of Scripture that they would see as building on um, what the, the scriptures actually teach, such as the doctrine of purgatory, uh, praying to saints, and also certain doctrines having to do with Mary, such as her perpetual virginity uh, or her uh, immaculate conception. So, I would be very uh, interested to hear uh, Dr. McCullough's uh, response to this, and he will obviously um, acknowledge that this is a key difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Uh, And another thing to say is that Protestants have very different interpretations of scriptures. So, Really, it's, the question should be, should the Protestant Reformations have occurred? And so I'm sure that'll be part of our debate. Second major point I want to talk about is faith, faith alone. Right? So a key doctrine uh, that Dr. Zorzi talked about that Protestants uh, brought to the conversation was that we are justified by faith alone, that faith is sufficient to uh, save the Christian um, before God. And so we're saved by grace alone, saved by faith alone. And so the distinction there is faith alone versus, and this would be the Catholic position, faith formed by love. And so here, uh, especially with uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, the belief is that uh, in certain readings of Paul, especially Paul repeats in Galatians, in Romans, uh, and in in other letters, that uh, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so, uh, Luther, in his interpretation of the scriptures, says that uh, we are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And so, uh, uh, one of the the most important texts for this uh, is his 1535 lectures on Galatians, Uh, but there are also a lot of scriptural um, pieces of evidence for this. And so, for example, Romans 10.13 says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And what I appreciate about this doctrine is how charitable it is, allows us to be towards other Christians. If Christians claim faith in Christ, uh, a Protestant can say, okay, that is a Christian, uh, especially if we agree on uh, the Apostles' Creed or certain, certain basic doctrines about the divinity of Jesus, for example. And so Protestants can be even more charitable, I think, than other traditions in uh, saying, yes, okay, we are all um, Christians and actually we will all uh, be saved if we call upon the name of the Lord uh, in that way. And so maybe we can have a broader conversation with Dr. McCullough about uh, Catholic views of faith and works and also about um, salvation. So I'd like to conclude uh, by saying that the Reformation was a good thing not only in introducing these doctrines and, and one might say recovering them uh, from Scripture itself, but also for the repercussions that it's had for uh, Christian faith more broadly. For example, uh, Protestants have opened the door for women in ministry, which is explicitly rejected uh, by Roman Catholicism. And we see this in uh, Pentecostalism and in other uh, Christian traditions, or excuse me, Protestant uh, traditions. And, but this is strictly prohibited by, um, by Roman Catholics, uh, the, especially the priesthood um, of, uh, of women. But then there are other things that I think the Reformation has uh, brought to our attention. I think it's uh, a more simple piety based in the trust of God's Word. So rather than moving towards uh, an understanding of praying to saints or or, uh, relics and other uh, practices that have uh, been abused um, and were in many ways the provocation of the Reformation, Protestant Christians have this basic trust in the Word of God, in Scripture, uh, and have a very simple piety in that way that's based around prayer, Bible studies, and gathering uh, together. So, I'd say, on the whole, should the Protestant Reformation have occurred? Yes, of course, Uh, and these are some of the reasons why I've introduced um, why that might be the case. I'd also like to say, given these distinctions, we might return to the original line from the creed, which is the communion of saints. And so how do we actually reckon with our differences and move towards unity, even though we have those distinctions? So maybe we can have a conversation about that as well. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Garcia. <laughs> All right, Dr. McCullough, welcome, welcome to the debate floor.
3: Thank you, thank you. And thank you to Dr. Garcia for his um, illuminated comments um, and misleading comments, of course, oh. naturally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, far uh, not totally misleading. The, he d- he had a, d- a good job of charity towards the Catholic position. I do want to say, um, and I, I think he helpfully lays out the two fundamental issues, which are are faith and scripture or authority. So sola fide, sola scriptura, as Dr. Zorzi talked about on Monday. But um, Dr. Zorzi also framed those issues in a way that was very faithful to to a Protestant understanding of Catholicism, to Luther's understanding of Catholicism, but which was a little bit less faithful to a Catholic's understanding of Catholicism. So part of what I want to do here is is maybe reframe some of what he said uh, in a way that Catholics would recognize themselves in that description. Uh, And the most important point here is on the sola fide side, which is that Catholics don't think that you're saved by works. So they don't think you earn your salvation through works. Salvation comes from grace alone through faith, grace producing faith in you. Catholics and Protestants agree on that. Catholics and Protestants also agree that when you have that faith, that saving faith, it works itself out in your life through works of love, helping the poor, prayer, fasting, all the normal devotions of a Christian life, and those things make you more holy. They sanctify you, so it's a process of sanctification. This is, again, Calvin says this, Luther says this, the Catholics all say this. Calvin and Luther get it from the Catholics. That's why they say it. Now, where do you get purgatory from? Purgatory comes in because, as everybody acknowledges, most Christians, when they die, are not perfectly sanctified. You haven't, you've worked, you've done your best, and you have a saving faith, you have a real relationship with Christ that will save you. But you haven't become perfect, you're still attached to sin in various ways. That's when you die. When you when you were resurrected, when you live your new life with God, you are perfect. So there's a gap between how you are when you die, how holy you are when you die, and how holy you are when you live in beatitude with the Lord. And it's the closing of that gap that is purgatory. Purgatory just comes from this word purgation, which is a kind of cleansing, a cleansing from sin. So it's the final cleansing. Maybe it's an instant at death, maybe it takes time, maybe it's a place, maybe it's not. There's no Catholic doctrine about that. All the Catholic doctrine says of purgatory is that there's a final sanctification that closes the, kind of the gap between how you are when you die and how you are when you are with the Lord. And notice that that gap can be greater or less depending on how much you've done in this life, how many works you've done, how, how sanctified you are in this life. After you've been given faith by grace, after you've worked it out, there's going to be the gap, but the gap could be more or less depending on how much you've worked out. And so the the Catholic understanding is that you can do things now that, as it were, lessen the amount of purgatory that you have to go through, precisely because you're more holy. And so there's less cleansing that you need when you die. You can do that for yourself, but you can also do that for other people because that's what the Church is. We're helping each other grow in faith, in holiness. And so there are things we can do for ourselves and for others that, that, as it were, lessen the gap of purgatory and make purgatory not as bad. That's all the Catholic teaching is. Luther, Calvin, the reformers, they don't want to use the word, the name, purgatory. They're worried about all these like, late medieval imaginative conceptions of purgatory, which are not Catholic doctrine. But in essence, they're implicitly committed to the same view, because they agree that we're perfect at the end and we're not perfect when we die, and that we can be made perfect in this life through our works. So that's, that's the basic teaching there. Now, where do Catholics and Protestants disagree then? Why do Protestants accuse Catholics of thinking that you can earn your salvation through works? And here there's two, two significant disagreements. There's lots of little details on these controversies, but the significant disagreements are twofold. First, as Dr. Garcia says, Catholics have a view that the faith that saves you is a loving faith, a faith formed by love. It's not faith alone in the sense of faith without love. So when Luther reads paul in romans saying faith alone saves you he says well look it's faith apart from the works of the law and what are the works of the law they're the works of love because the the commands of the law in the new testament are commands of love so any love is a work of the law and cannot save you the catholic view is that that's a misreading of paul what paul means when he says the works of the law don't save you faith alone saves you he's meaning things like circumcision he's meaning things outward acts like helping the poor he doesn't mean an inward disposition of the heart which is what love consists in. And so, Paul, this is very clear if you look elsewhere in Paul. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is very clear. He says, Even if I have a faith that can move mountains, a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Not I am saved. I am nothing without love. And that's the Catholic view. There's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. You need love as part of your faith to be saved. That's one difference. Second difference question of grace. So the faith comes to us through grace. Grace is what gives us that faith. We don't do it for ourselves. It's from God. But the Catholic view is that grace can be resisted. Luther and Calvin and other reformers say that that grace is irresistible. You can't. God doesn't just offer you salvation and you can say no to it. God gives you the salvation and makes you say yes to it. Because the worry is, with the Catholic view, the worry is that if you have to say yes to it or if you can reject grace, then it seems like maybe you have to do something. You have to do some kind of work to earn your salvation. They think that that's a work. The Catholic view is that, no, God gives you the grace, but once you've been given the grace, you can reject it. You can resist it. The problem with the the Calvinist and the Lutheran view is that the the, the view of God you end up with is is sort of monstrous because God says... Basically, to those in hell, I didn't give you the grace. And to those in heaven, I gave you the grace and you couldn't say no. So God decides totally who's going to be saved and who's going to be damned. And some people are damned and some people are saved. And it's not up to them. Catholic view, God gives that grace to everybody. Some say no, and that's why they're in hell. That doesn't mean that they worked their salvation. It was still from God, but they could say no. So those are the two disagreements. Now, the second question. Sola Scriptura, authority. Quickly here
0: got one minute.
3: All right, well, we've got some time too. <laughs> the, important, the important distinction here is not whether the Bible is authoritative. Everyone agrees that the Bible is an authority, the highest the high authority, highest authority f- for Christians. The question is, whose interpretation of the Bible is authoritative? Is it you, the individual, or is it the churches? When the rubber hits the road, you need to decide... You have lots of individual Christians running around who are good people, who are sincere people, who are reading the same scriptures as you, and they come up with very different understandings of scripture. This happened in the early church, this happened in the medieval church, it happens now. In the fourth century, the Arians came along, they had the same Bible, they were good Christians, they weren't, they didn't think of themselves as heretics, they thought of themselves as orthodox, and they said, look at the Bible, it says that Jesus is not fully God. God is one, God is the Father, that's what the Old Testament says, that's what the New Testament says, Jesus is not God. So what do you say to those people? Well, the church came together and said, no, that's a misreading of scripture. And what do you, now the question for the Protestant is, what do you tell the Arian who has that view from their individual reading of scripture in good faith? Do you say, listen to your individual interpretation of scripture and deny the divinity of Jesus? Or do you say, listen to the church? Listen to the council of bishops who came together and said, you have to believe in the Trinity. You have to believe in the divinity of Christ. That's the question for every Protestant.
0: That is seven minutes. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. (laughs) All right. So now we have five minutes um, of discussion between these two debaters to see. I want to see where you all want to go with this. We had two really excellent articulations of two very different positions. Where do we go from here?
1: Do, they, do we want them to go back up to the podiums again? Should be sure, why like not? presidential debate Alright. style.
0: Yeah, sure. Unstructured. I'm just going to wheel myself back here.
3: Well, I, I ended with a question for Protestants generally, but maybe Dr. Garcia could, could uh, handle out. Yeah, I,
2: I, uh, I appreciate your comments, uh, Dr. McCullough. I think uh, Dr. Zorzi said uh, something that's very important to keep in mind, which is that Luther and Calvin and the Reformers did not reject all of the tradition that came before them. They um, actually affirmed much of the early church councils, uh, affirming the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus. Uh, and so there is a role for tradition in affirming what, um, what scripture says. But I think the problem becomes when, for example, when you were describing purgatory, uh, what we might call mind the gap theology, um, because you're trying to mind the gap, <laughs> there seems to be a kind of, a jump there, where in Scripture, for example, um, in Luke, there's this, this uh, episode where, um, I forget what, what the, the details are, but it's Lazarus in, in heaven, right? And so he's looking down and seeing somebody in hell, and the person in hell says, um, please, can I have um, some water? I, you know, I'm so thirsty down here, this is so hot in here, here in hell. And he says, well, there's a chasm. There's a chasm between heaven and hell that can never be um, breached right and so th- at that point uh, th- the implication would be that there's no kind of middle zone and so then the question course, the question becomes that whether purgatory is a location or whether it's um, temporary or uh, I guess on Catholic doctrine there's no specificity as to what that might be um, but, but it's not permanent it's not permanent right, right. it's not it's a not third permanent. place yeah, right? a, So there's of course there's
3: the chasm the question yeah. is for the people on the good side of the chasm how did they get so good and right, it clearly I, wasn't yes. in this life. But I
2: think the issue still remains that by, by virtue of uh, a
3: theological
2: um, gap, something is added to the Scripture. I think that's the, what Protestants would say, that this is not um, affirmed in Scripture, it's not detailed in Scripture, and so it would be dangerous to actually add that. So, so, do so you think in, the way, in, in the same way that yeah. the Arians are yeah. making some uh, additions or misinterpretations, uh, the problem is that the Roman Catholics might be doing the same.
3: But do, So do you think that the sincere Arian who just reads the scripture and feels inspired by the Holy Spirit and is a good person, a holy person, that when the rest of the church says, no, Jesus is definitely divine, they should say, no, you're all wrong. I'm right. My little community is right. The rest of the church through time and history is wrong. Or do they submit to the church, the church's authority? because that's the question. Luther doesn't submit. This happens exactly to Luther. This is the cause of the Reformation. Should the Reformation have occurred? No. It should never have occurred. It shouldn't have occurred with Arius. It shouldn't have occurred with Luther. This is what Luther says. Here I stand. I can do no other. I have my reading of scripture. I'm going to take that against everybody else's. Well, the question is, is submit to
2: whom? Submit to whom? To the church. Because the the Eastern
3: Orthodox actually reject the authority of the Pope. As the See of Rome, as the accept, highest they authority, accept, they accept the authority of uh, the Pope, but they, they have a different understanding of how his primacy relates to the other bishops. But all it's both still a rejection Orthodox and Catholic understanding. Yes Orthodox, or no? yes, th- but Orthodox and Catholics both accept the authority of bishops, and the Orthodox have their own. Assembly of bishops after the Reformation that rejects the exact same things that the Catholics reject in the Reformation so the same things that Luther says that the Catholics find problematic the Orthodox also find problematic Luther also says no to them I mean he's not alive at that point but Lutherans say no to them and all Protestants now implicitly say no to them and the question is how then do you condemn the Arians how do you condemn all the heretics throughout history because they're still around. There's this, the disagreements are still with us. People are constantly starting new denominations because of their individual reading of Scripture, because it says you can handle snakes or whatever, and so they come up with their own
0: view. Hey now, hey now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, and so, but so the implication is that there's only salvation within Roman Catholicism? That's not the implication. The implication is there's orthodoxy in Roman Catholicism. So exclusive orthodoxy? Oh uh, No, I mean, you can. Protestants are right about all sorts of other things, so but there's some things that they were wrong.
2: Do you think Protestants will go to hell if they know that Roman Catholics are actually
3: uh, the most orthodox and if do, they, not if they realize, do not join? Yeah, if, so if, the, if Protestants realize that the Roman Catholic Church is the church, not just a denomination, but is actually the church of Christ on earth, continuing on earth, which is what Catholics claim for themselves. They don't think of themselves as a denomination. If they realize that, and this is the body of Christ on earth, and they reject it, then they are saying no to Christ. Of course, most Protestants nowadays don't realize that because they've been raised by Protestants. Luther might have realized that, but later Lutherans are raised in a faith in which Catholics are the Antichrist or some crazy view, or you know, you get Dr. Zorzi's views of what Catholicism is. You're earning your salvation. Of course, you shouldn't accept that, but once you realize what Catholicism is and you say no to it, then you are saying no to the body of Christ, and to say no to the body of Christ is to say no to the Father.
2: Right, so I, I, I think that that's just such a strong equivalence between the Roman Catholic Church and the body of Christ, which would actually put people who reject Catholicism in. Uh, with full knowledge. With reject full it with knowledge, full knowledge. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay,
3: so we can debate what full knowledge means. But basically, but look, anybody who uh, listens to this lecture. Do you think. <laughs> no, no, but they don't have full knowledge. Do you, do you think okay, that. So partial. Do you think that Arius is outside the faith?
2: Yes. Yeah. Why? Why? Because, like yes, I said. Scripture. Because, as I said, that when um, Athanasius and the early church rejected Arius, um, that was an interpretation that actually was in line with Scripture. It was a good interpretation of Scripture. And so... But he didn't know the, that. The Lutherans and the Calvinists and many, uh, most Protestants would agree that actually Arius was problematic. Now, there's a bigger question also post-Reformation, but you could even say... Um, yeah, well, post-Reformation and, and in, our, in our moment that one man's heretic is another man's hero, right? And so what, what is heresy actually in, in today's world? So if you call me a heretic, how am I supposed to respond to that? Because actually, if I don't uh, acknowledge the, the authority of the Roman Catholic Church,
3: that at that point, it's just very, very um, difficult. You're, you're only, point, you're only okay. a heretic if you recognize the authority of that the church is the church and then say no.
0: All right. So we could go on forever. And I'm loving this discussion so much. It's fascinating. Um, but we want to bring some of the students in on this discussion. So if you have a question, TAs, will you run up here and, do and we have ask any us in Three questions.
1: Come on. Just come up the stairs over there. Yeah. Just come on and Come on down. Run up, I'll run up, run. I'll, I'll, I'll do the mic with the oh, students. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So our moderator can thank remain you, enthroned Doke. between the speakers. Yes. Come on down, student. I need like...
0: You need a scepter. Yeah. I do.
1: Some attendance behind you, perhaps? That's right. (laughs) Please come over here. (laughs) What's up? Don't turn your back on the crowd, okay? What, uh, state your name and your question respectfully. My name is Richard,
3: and my question is for Dr. Garcia. It seems to me that in life, we have hierarchies in basically everything. We have government, we have the state, um, even these are doctors and we're not. So why is it that only in Religion are Protestants so averse to hierarchy?
1: Okay, you may exit the stage. Well, well, Protestants are Protestants averse my question to? You, Richard, to is why
2: aren't you a, a Catholic? Well, I probably will <laughs>
0: convert. I think there's another question implicit: Are Protestants averse to authority as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's so again, the question becomes um, Protestant Reformation's because uh, they're are many Protestant denominations that would be hierarchical. So for example, Episcopalians or Anglicans have a sense of um, hierarchy and authority. They have a system of bishops, and so um, the episcopacy that, that, that refers to um, the, the group of bishops, and then you would have more egalitarian groups like the Quakers, right? And so they would actually reject all of that hierarchy. So, so yeah, I don't think it's a, a blanket rejection of hierarchy um, in and of itself, it's actually a rejection of a Roman Catholic interpretation of scripture when it comes to hierarchy, which would actually put the Pope at the head of that hierarchy. Uh, and so Dr. Zorzi said this too, and I, I, I actually think uh, I would be uh, open to hearing what Dr. McCullough has to say about this, but his whole interpretation, uh, Dr. Zorzi's interpretation that the head of the church actually is a replacement for the Pope or that the Pope can't be that. I don't know if uh, how, how the Roman Catholics actually um, interpret that, but uh, I mean do Christ think- mean Christ is the head of the church? Yeah, Christ is the head of the church. means that there can't be a pope. Exactly, yeah, right. that's what Dr. Storzi was saying. So how would you respond to that, uh, Dr. McCullough? Do you think that the pope is uh, the head of the church, or how, how do you make
3: that well, distinction? no, so obviously Christ is the head of the church in the primary sense. Um, the question is, what gifts of Christ are shared with us or participated in by us? So just as, th- we're thinking about this a lot with coronavirus, just as Christ suffers, in some sense, to to take away our need to pay the debt, or to pay the penalty, or our need to suffer ourselves. But that's in one sense. But in another sense, of course, the Christian life is full of suffering. When you read Paul, it's all about suffering. But you're suffering now in a different way, because you're participating in Christ's suffering. So you're suffering with and in Christ. Christ's suffering, Christ's work as head, as giver of grace, as sufferer of punishment, Those are all primary, but we as Christians play a role in communicating that and extending that in the world. So we, you know, Christ's preaching is sufficient, but of course we still preach. We still preach the word. Now we aren't doing it instead of Christ. Christ is doing it through us. And in the same way, when when the church, through the bishops, through the Pope, when when they exercise authority, it's not that Christ's authority has stopped. Christ's authority is being exercised through them in the spirit. That's the basic idea. So so it's not a it's not substitutionary in a strong sense because we don't Christ doesn't do things so that we don't have to do them. Christ does things so that we, we can do them in a new and a transformed way in him. Whether that's how we suffer as Christians, how we preach as Christians, how we exercise authority as Christians. And one thing I'll say on the authority question with for Protestants which maybe I shouldn't speak on, but I do think that all Protestant denominations have some kind of authority, de facto. There's an authority of pastors, even in very low churches. There's an authority of parents. There's an authority of the tradition. Quakers, you know, are very low church, but there's a Quaker tradition which each subsequent generation respects. And the, qu- the question from the Catholic side is not, how did you get rid of all the authority? The question is, how can you give an account of the authority that you actually practice? Because your theory is not adequate to your practice. Your theory is that it's individual interpretation of Scripture. In practice, you listen to what your pastor says. You listen to what previous generations of your Protestant tradition says. But why is your Protestant tradition authoritative? Catholics have an account of that. Our tradition is authoritative because it is the Church. It's the Holy Spirit guaranteed that we be to, be to lead us into all truth, as Christ says.
0: I want to open that. I, I, I want to invite Dr. Garcia to reflect on that, um, maybe as a theologian and also as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. And then let's have another question. Do you have any questions? reflections on yeah
2: i mean i I do think um so uh many protestants what they will do is uh talk about how paul talks about different roles in the church right so pastors teachers elders deacons and so those would be the roles that they uh would recognize as authoritative and so uh, in the same way that protestants would recognize that scripture is the highest authority um, and it's not um uh it's not in the, the the same uh, rank as the church's authority. Nevertheless, in scripture, there are guidelines
1: for what those authorities within the church should be in the body of Christ.
0: Thank you. Thank you. All right. We need we've Come got on down. time for another question. Student
1: number two, enter the center of the stage. It's your lucky <laughs> day. It's <laughs> your lucky day. Yep. Please, with calmness in your heart, state your name and your question.
0: My name is Jenna, and my question um, is for both of you on how do you answer the role of women in the church? You said from the Protestant position that the Protestant church is open to women in leadership, although there's a plethora of Protestant traditions that are not open to women in leadership. And then also for you, like how does the Catholic church answer women that want to be in uh, different ministry roles, and also like how does Mary go into that, and even with uh, Catholic Christian mystics that are women? So a very open question of like how do you answer the women in the church question. Women in the church. Go? All right.
2: Go. Why don't you go first? I've
0: been going first a lot.
3: Um, okay. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I, it helpfully brings out the diversity within Protestantism, too, which is very nice. Um, so the, the Catholic understanding is that women can have uh, roles in ministry and in leadership, but women cannot be ordained priests. Um, so there's... So you can have heads of monasteries, abbesses who exercise leadership, and in the medieval and you get mystics, and in the medieval period and throughout church history, there have always been very strong female voices who have even done things like preach, not in mass, but have gone on preaching tours to reform the church. And um, there's a famous uh, medieval mystic, late medieval mystic named Catherine of Siena, who sort of reprimands the Pope on a number of, ca- of occasions and uh, excoriates him and sort of convinces him to reform his ways. and there's, you, you see these figures constantly. But, all that said, so there's, there's roles for women in, in leadership, um, and there's ways in which I think uh, the Catholic Church could do more to foster that. So there's continued failings on that front. But there is a, the firm teaching that women cannot be priests, and that's because of the, the particular understanding of priesthood in the Catholic Church. And this gets at, at deeper and larger issues. Um, that has to do with the fact that the Catholic priest represents, represents the, the sacrifice of the cross. So the, the reason Catholics have priests is because they believe that the mass, the liturgy, the service that they go to on Sundays, that that is makes present again, represents the sacrifice on the cross that Christ made, in which Christ offers himself up to the Father. And the priest is the one who stands in the person of Christ and offers himself up, offers the offers the body of christ which is the eucharist offers that up to the father so that that sacrifice is not something that happened back in time and we sort of just remember it intellectually it's something that happens for all eternity it's the it's the high point of all creation and it's made present every time a priest sacrifices it it makes present the sacrifice of the mass which happens basically every day at a catholic church basically every day
0: all right dr garcia
2: yeah. I mean, I think this is a really, really interesting question. Uh, and I have to say, I would love for Protestants to um, have a more robust uh, discussion about Mary, for example. Uh, and so, and, and Luther had a very high view of Mary too. Um, so actually, I think in response to Roman Catholicism, uh, there's been a hesitancy uh, among Protestants to talk about Mary, but actually, by uh, affirming the special role of Mary, Catholics have opened up uh, a lot of affirmation of women in the church um, and given a kind of um, model, right, not only for for women but for men as well, uh, In her humility, and uh, Protestants would say her humility, and she's justified by faith in the same way all the heroes of of the faith are, so uh, so in that way we can um, imitate and should, Uh, and so the Magnificat, uh, the saying, Mary's song, is something that we should all recover in our, our own practice. Um, so, so just to say that, another thing is, I think with the authority of scripture, this is where the debate really centers. Uh, and so Protestants reading, Paul especially, would say um, there is a lot of room to say that uh, women should not be in ordained ministry, right? Uh, But then there's a major debate as to, especially I I think what's a a very um, fruitful discussion from Pentecostals uh, especially, is looking at Acts 2 and the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in Pentecost, uh, especially the reference to Joel, uh, where the now women are given to prophesy and women are given to to teach even Uh, and so uh, Acts 2 especially and if you look at Luke the writer of Luke Acts has a very high view of women and so there's a debate within Protestantism as to whether scripture itself opens up uh, the possibilities for for women in ministry but because uh, Protestantism doesn't have uh, this priestly mass sacrifice understanding um, of the priest as an icon, as male icon, right? So the, the Catholics would argue that Jesus was in fact male, and so the priest who is an icon of uh, Jesus in that moment has to be in fact male. Uh, b- because Protestants don't have that as a as a basic premise of their understanding of the office of the pastor or priest, then there's more flexibility on that. But th- thank you for that question. because I so think That's it's useful, and just to,
3: just to connect the maleness, because I didn't quite get in the, with my response, is that it's important that the sacrifice and the, f- the cross is a feast, it's a wedding feast. And so the gender is actually, the symbolism of the gender is deeply important there, that Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And so the the priest, who's the icon of Christ, the maleness of the priest actually matters in a way. So so it is there's a deep commitment to different... to to differences between the genders, even though there's an equality between them.
2: And I'd also just add one last uh, point. Uh, What's interesting about Paul is that although he has specific, um, I I mean, Paul is is fascinating on so many uh, levels and radical and, and amazing but very difficult to read. And even in another <laughs> letter, oh one, one of the letters says, well, you know, Paul's letters are, are difficult to understand, right? You must need somebody to interpret them yeah. for <laughs> you, <laughs> right. would oh. you say? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. I love I love that one for you. Um, <laughs> thank but, you, thank you. so in Paul's letters, some of the explicit statements that he has about women um, have have been uh, uh, difficult for, um, for many people, especially when he says things like, or at least in the letter of 1 f- Corinthians, that women need to be silent in church, Um, and then in the pastoral epistles that women are somehow saved through childbirth, etc. So those things can be uh, interpreted in many, many ways. But at the end of Paul's letters, he thanks many people that he's been in partnership with, and he ends up listing many, many women, right? So I think scripture itself, in the tension of how it handles um, this question, opens up the possibility for many interpretations. And I Again, that's why I think the Protestant Reformation has actually blessed Christianity and leavened the loaf in a a good way. And in the same way that Catholics came to accept um, the Protestants' uh, view of having the, the Scriptures in the vernacular, maybe one day the Catholic Church will be reformed and have women in ministry. Who knows? He mean women what? What about women priest, Erasmus?
0: Yeah. Okay, wait. We'll have another, another conversation question. about one more question. We We've got three we we minutes. We time for one more.
1: Yes. Please, young student. Lightning round. Go Blazers. Go Blazers. Go Blazers. Yeah. No even though they won't be playing for a well.
0: while. Say your name
1: and ask the question. My name is Brennan, and my question is for Dr. McCalla. Uh, from my understanding of how purgatory was described, it sounds like a place of final sanctification
3: after death. And so, with that idea, would that open the door for universal salvation? So there are there are people who argue um, for universal salvation in this way in, in the early church, like Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, maybe. Um, they're not uh, accepted uh, by either Eastern Orthodox or Catholics as authorities on this question. But yeah, these people basically read all the passages that we think of as hell passages as actually purgatory passages. And a number of passages that you might naturally have thought of as hell actually seem much more purgatorial when you think about them that you're for instance in matthew and on a couple of occasions jesus talks about uh, punishments that you will be punished until you have paid the last price until you have paid off your debt, things like this, um, which sounds like there's an end to the punishments. But again, there's other, there's other places where Jesus will say there's going to be an eternal punishment just like there's an eternal reward. So there's some kind of parallel. And the, the Catholic understanding, the kind of Orthodox Catholic understanding, is that to do justice to all the scriptural witness, you, you can have the purgatorial fires, as it were, that might look some sanctif- uh, you know, um, punitive in the way that hell is punitive. Um, but you also need an actual hell. Um, so, so yeah, there's some precedence there uh, in tradition for saying that, but that's not the official Catholic teaching. Yeah.
0: All right. So, thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, we Can are we have com- a round of applause. Yes, for our debate. please. We are coming um, to the end of our time. Uh, Together and I just want to thank you both for embodying the spirit of generosity and unity and spirit centered Love that we hope to promote in this class overall even though there are some significant distinctions between the two of you So thank you so much um, for for doing that and helping us um, teach our students about the the diversity of um, the church. Yes. Thank you, brothers. we Are going to hug? Shake hands. Hug in the time of the virus. Oh, social distancing. (laughs) Um, Christians have overcome
1: social distancing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) On the stage today. So
0: so Dr. Doak and I want to remind you to be looking on Foxtail for your reaction paper quiz. Reaction Reaction paper paper quiz. quiz. It will be coming your way. Thank you to the students who have joined us. Yay.
1: Students, one more time.
0: Any parting words?
1: No, I feel really, I feel really inspired to hear this debate. I've l- I learned things through the debate. Definitely. I learned things about Catholicism from Dr. McCullough and I learned things from Dr. Garcia. And I feel really good.
0: Yeah. Mission accomplished.
1: All right. See ya.
0: Thanks.
3: What is happening in this world. What are we going to do? Yeah. No, I don't want to think about that. I just wonder how 2021 is going to top cuz 2019 was clearly like the worst that it could be and here we are in like an epidemic. So what happens what happens next year?